First Corinthians 15. Last week we began a short mini-series of messages called Resolute. And we saw that people are scared. People everywhere, they are scared to death of everyone and everything. But God's people don't have to be scared. We don't need to be afraid. We do need to be resolute. Marked by a firm determination. Steady. Bold. Faithful. Resolved. Last week, Peter and John gave us a recipe for resolve in Acts chapter 4. Today, the Apostle Paul is going to help us to develop an informed resolve in 1 Corinthians 15. An informed resolve. That's our subject this morning. If you've ever had surgery, uh, you, you had to give an informed consent. And that's when the doctor comes in one last time and he goes over your surgery with you and he says, here's what we're going to do. Here's exactly what we're going to do to you. And uh, here's what we hope to happen. Here's what we hope this surgery will accomplish for you. But now we also need to tell you things could go wrong and this could happen and there are risks involved and we could have complications and we could have unforeseen consequences and, and there's this and this and this and you actually could die from this. And so there's the risks there are the rewards. And now that you have been informed, you need to give your consent. Having been informed of the risk and the rewards, the potential benefits, the potential harm, all right, I voluntarily agree you can do this procedure on me. I, I consent to the surgery. An informed consent. You need to know some stuff so that you can give that consent. Well, this morning we're talking about an informed resolve. You need to know some stuff. And then you can be resolved. And if you have your listening guide, there's, you have your bulletin, the listening guide on the back panel, you can see that's where we're going to go first. We're going to be informed. There's some things we need to know, and that will inform our resolve. And all of this is going to come out of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, let me just kind of set the stage for us. 1 Corinthians 15 is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It is a powerful chapter. It comforts us. It encourages us. It inspires us. It challenges us. 1 Corinthians 15 is often called the resurrection chapter. That's because it's all about resurrection. It is about the Lord's resurrection, and it is about our resurrection. The church at Corinth, somewhere along the way, has become, has become infected with a false doctrine. These people have taken on a notion that there is no bodily resurrection. That the best that we can hope for is a disembodied existence one day in heaven. And perhaps they're even beginning to question the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ, the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And so Paul is going to take dead aim at that false doctrine in this chapter. He's going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And we will be raised from the dead. A bodily resurrection on both counts. Now we're not going to look at this whole chapter verse by verse. We can't do that. And that's not our purpose this morning. But we're going to take it in its entirety. And the first 57 verses all come down to a punchline in verse 58. So the first 57 verses, that's our information. <laughs> and verse 58, there's our resolve. So let's take a look. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul starts, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, the good news, which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. There's the gospel. Here's the first thing you need to know as far as your outline goes. Here's what you need to know. Christ died and rose again. 
Christ died and rose again. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised again the third day. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's the irreducible essence of the gospel. And notice that the resurrection of Jesus Christ goes hand in hand with the crucifixion of Jesus. Without Easter Sunday, there is no Good Friday. (laughs) And without Good Friday, there is no Easter Sunday. It's two sides of the same coin. Jesus Christ died for our sins. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes you. We've all sinned against God. We've violated God's commandments. Our sins have separated us from God, condemned us to an eternity apart from God. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that Christ died for our sins. He's the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. He bore our sins in His body on the cross. They buried His dead body, His corpse, in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, He came out of that grave alive. He was raised again. We serve a risen Savior. And if you'll repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, He'll forgive your sins and save your soul. He'll forgive you. He'll save you. He is our Savior. So there's the gospel. Well, how do you know that that's true? How how do you believe that? Why do you believe that? Paul goes on. He says, And He, this risen Savior, appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also." So the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not the idea of one person. It's not the testimony of one person. It's not the experience one man had. Paul says, listen, over 500 people saw Jesus Christ. Over 500 eyewitnesses. I'm just one of them. But over there, over 500 eyewitnesses. Most of them are still alive. If you don't believe me, go ask them. They'll tell you. Over 500 eyewitnesses. So here we have the eyewitness testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is a risen Savior. Now move down to verse 12. He says, now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? There's the problem. That's the issue. Some of these folks have believed this false doctrine that there's no resurrection from the dead. So Paul says, listen, if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we, of all, we are of all men most to be pitied. So there's the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to our faith. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then this is one great big colossal joke. What a waste of time. Preaching is a waste of time. Your faith is a waste of time. This is all one great big scam if there is no resurrection from the dead and if Christ be not raised. Praise the Lord, Christ is risen. Christ is risen. So there's the, the centrality of the resurrection of Christ to our faith. Now we move down to verse 35. Move down to verse 35. But someone will say, well, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Okay, Paul, you've convinced me there is a resurrection from the dead. Okay, I get it. There's going to be a resurrection what in the world is that going to look like? Because you know what? I've seen zombie movies, and it's pretty gross. <laughs> you know, are we talking, you know, walking dead? It's gory. It's, it's scary. What kind of resurrection are we looking at here? So he begins to answer that question. We're going to move down to verse 42. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown. He's talking about a, a, a corpse. When we have a burial, 
We bury a, a, a sown, we, we plant in the ground, a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. Here's what the resurrection will look like. What we put in the ground was perishable, but it's going to come out imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It'll be raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Move down to verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality then will come about the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory O death where is your victory O death where is your sting the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ therefore my beloved brethren be steadfast and movable always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord all right, so let's take a look. We need to know some things. If we're going to have an informed resolve, we need some information. The first item, Christ died and rose again. Here's the second thing you need to know. To have an informed resolve, you need to know this. You will die. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Aren't you glad you came to church today? Uh, you will die. More precisely, your body will die. This is what Paul tells us in verse 50. I say this, brethren... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We live in perishable, decaying, dying bodies. If you don't believe me, just wait till you turn 40. <laughs> uh, boy, howdy. I mean, the warranty expires when you're 40. When you're 20 years old, you're 10 foot tall and bulletproof and nothing hurts and you can do whatever you want to. You can leap tall buildings in a single bound. You get hurt, you heal quickly. I mean, it's, it's amazing when you're young. But when you get 40, things change. And if you go over the hill at 40, the brakes go out at 50 and it just speeds up and the road gets curvy. It just, it's a scary ride. I mean, it, it just gets worse and worse. And there's a, you get to a certain age and there's not a day that goes by you don't have pain somewhere in your body. And Adrian Rogers used to say, those daily aches and pains are just a reminder you're dying. We live in dying, decaying, mortal, perishable bodies. These bodies are dying. And Paul tells us flesh and blood, this flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The king, these flesh and blood bodies, they're subject to sin. They're subject to death. In the kingdom of heaven, there is no sin, there is no death. So something's got to change. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Perishable cannot inherit imperishable. This, this corruption cannot be, uh, it cannot be subject to, cor uh, this corruption cannot put on incorruption, or it must put on incorruption. Uh, so there is a change that has to happen. There's a transformation that must take place, and that's where he's going to take us. But now we're going to hit the pause button here for just a moment. As we think about death and dying and the resurrection, this brings up a question. What happens... When a believer dies. Now I'm talking about believers this morning. So if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been saved, you've been born again. You turn from your sin, you put your faith in Jesus, you receive by faith His gift of eternal life. He forgives you, saves you, changes you, and now you are Christ's Father. That's who I'm talking about, that's who I'm talking to this morning. What happens when a believer dies? 
You are body, soul, and spirit. You don't have a body, you are a body. You don't have a soul, you are a soul. You don't have a spirit, you are a spirit. You are body, soul, and spirit. When you die as a believer, when you die, your soul and spirit go to be with the Lord Jesus. Who you are, the essence of your personhood, you, your soul and spirit, go to be with Jesus. This is what Paul expected. In Philippians 1, Paul says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How in the world could you ever say dying is gain? What could be good about death? Well, Paul tells us, to depart and be with Christ is far better. In the context of Philippians 1, Paul is saying, you know what, man, I just can't decide. i got two good choices. To live is to live for Jesus. It's to serve Jesus. It's to tell people about Jesus. It's about making disciples. For to me, to live is Christ. On the other hand, to die is go be with Jesus. Man, that's a hard choice. You're going to make me choose, aren't you? I can't hardly decide. Live for Jesus or die and be with Jesus. Well, if you really push me, I guess I'm going to say, I'd rather be with Jesus. For to me to live is Christ and die is gain. Because to depart and be with Christ, that's better. He says the same thing, only different way, over in 2 Corinthians 5. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. In other words, if you're here, you're not there. (laughs) If you're there, you're not here. But I would rather be there than here. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And he says, and we prefer, we are willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. When a believer dies, your soul and spirit, who you are, go to be with Jesus Christ. But now we've got a body here. We've got a, we've got a body without a spirit. James tells us that the body without a spirit is dead. We've got a dead body. What we typically do in our culture is we'll take that body, we'll put it in a box, and we'll put that box in the ground. We have a burial. That's what Paul has in view here, something that is sown. We put that body in the ground. But that's not the end of the story. That body will be raised again. That's the thrust of this passage. So here's the third fact you need to know. Christ died and rose again. You will die, especially your body. Specifically, your body will die. And you will be raised again. Specifically, your body will be raised again. Your body will be raised again. One day, our bodies will be resurrected. And this is what he's saying in verse 51. I show you a mystery. A mystery is not a puzzle to be solved. It's something that we... It was concealed before, but now it's been revealed. It's something we didn't understand before, but now we do understand it in the light of Christ and, and the rest of Scripture. Here's a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We won't all die, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, this mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable and this will I put on imperishable, the mortal put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So this body that is... This, this flesh and blood body that will one day be buried will be raised again, but it's not going to be exactly this flesh and blood. Praise the Lord. It's going to be different. It will be changed. Over in Revelation, it says that in, in that time, in that place, in that state, there will be no more death. Can you imagine life without death? <laughs> We've never known life without death. It, life and death go together. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more pain. Can you imagine life without pain? We don't know anything. We don't know what that looks like. No more pain. No more crying. Can you imagine life without tears? It says that God will take, he'll, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. No more tears. No more crying. No more pain. No more death. Folks, that's different, isn't it? Changed. We will be 
changed. This resurrection changes everything. You'll be raised again. Now, if you are alive when Christ returns, you get to skip that whole death, burial, and resurrection thing. I mean, you get to, you're going to be instantly changed without the benefit of death, burial, and resurrection. You'll just instantly be changed into that glorified state. And, and then so shall we ever be with the Lord. First Thessalonians 4 tells us more about that. That's a whole other story for another time. But notice that this perishable will put on the imperishable. This mortal will put on immortality. We will be changed. And then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is the enemy. Death is the enemy. It's not just, it's the circle of life and it's just natural. No, death is an enemy. But it's a defeated enemy. In fact, Paul tells us in this chapter, in verse 26, the last enemy that will be abolished is death. So death is our defeated enemy. One day it will be abolished, destroyed, gone forever. There'll be no more death. But for now, there is death. We, we can't deny it. We try real hard to deny it. But oh yes, you will die. You can't stop it. All die. In Adam, all die. He says that in this chapter as well. The wages of sin is death. It is pointed unto every man wants to die. So we're going to die. We can't deny it. We can't stop it. We're going to die. But folks, we don't have to be afraid of it. It's a defeated foe. It's a defeated enemy. Hebrews 2 speaks of those who through fear of death are subject to slavery all their lives. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ partook of death so that he might free us from that slavery to the fear of death. You know people who are scared to death of death. We don't have to be afraid of death. We know it's coming. It's an enemy, but it's a defeated enemy. And we don't have to be afraid of it. Because to die is gain. To depart and be with Christ is far better. Death is not the end. That's not the end of the story. It's already defeated. One day it will be destroyed. And verse 55, we have a taunt song. Oh, death... Where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? I mean, this takes us back to, you know, schoolyard days. This is a schoolyard taunt. Nah, 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 nah. You know, you can't hurt me. It's, oh, death, you can't hurt me. You know, come on, bring it. You know, what you got? <laughs> is that all you got? You don't have to be afraid of death. It's a taunt song. It is a defeated enemy. He goes on to say, the sting of death is sin. The ultimate root cause of all physical and spiritual death is sin. Why, why do people die? Because of sin. It all goes back to Adam. Adam sinned and brought sin into the human race, and now in Adam all die. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, and in Adam all die. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. The power of sin is the law. Two ideas in view here. One, Paul tells us in Romans and Galatians that the law, the law of God, is a tutor. That the law of God teaches us, it instructs us that we are sinners. You look at God's law, just the Ten Commandments. Huh? I mean, all you need is the Ten Commandments. And boom, you get schooled real fast. You're a sinner. We have all broken the laws of God. Just the Ten Commandments. We've all violated the laws of God, the Ten Commandments. The law reveals, it teaches, it instructs us. You are a sinner, and you need forgiveness. You need God's grace. You need mercy. You need forgiveness. You need salvation. You need Jesus. The law instructs us. But then the law also provokes us. <laughs> the law of God provokes within our sin nature a rebellious response. 
Now, that's not a shortcoming of the law. That's our fault. That's our shortcoming. Our hearts are desperately wicked, deceitful above all else. Who can know it? We're just, that's our sin nature. The law provokes in our rebellious nature that rebellious response. If you're a parent, you know what this looks like. You have a kid, you tell your kid, don't touch that. You hear me? I'm telling you right now. Do not touch that pulpit. Don't I? You better not dare touch it. Now, you know what's going to happen? It won't be 60 seconds. <laughs> it's just what they do, isn't it? Don't do that. They, do, they go and do it. It's almost like you tell them not to, it makes them want to do it. It's just, but folks, that's not kids. That's every one of us. The strength of sin is the law. God says in his word to grown-ups, Thou shalt not, dot, 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 fill in the blank. Thou shalt not, and we instantly go, well, maybe a little. <laughs> well, maybe I can. Well, it won't hurt anything. Well, nobody will know. Or you can't stop me. Or you can't tell me what to do. And it's just, again, it's not the law's fault. It's our fault. The heart is desperately wicked. That's our sin nature. The strength of sin is the law. But he goes on to tell us, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have victory over sin, we have victory over death, and our ultimate victory will be realized at that day of resurrection, the resurrection day when this mortal will put on immortality. So, here's, here's the facts. Here's what you need to know. So there's three, Christ died and rose again. Two, you will die, your body will die. You will be raised again, your body will be raised again. I'm talking to Christians about Christians. Number four, You'll be judged. And we'll go ahead and give you three more facts, and we'll come back around to them. You will be judged. Hebrews 9, 27, is appointed unto man, wants to die. And after this, judgment. You will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ one day. He is the righteous judge who judges the living and the dead. We must all give an account of ourselves to him. There is coming a day of judgment. You will be judged. And then number five, you may be rewarded. On that day of judgment, and it kind of depends, we'll see. Not everybody will be rewarded, but maybe you will. You may be rewarded at that day of judgment. And then number six, you will live forever. I'm talking to Christians about Christians, but you will live forever. Jesus said, he that believes in me will live even if he dies. He that lives and believes in me will never die. That's the definition of eternal life. Your body will die, but you will never die. Your body will die, it'll be buried, it'll be raised again. But you, you will never die. And after the resurrection, we'll live with the Lord forever. Okay, so those are some facts. 57 verses in, this entire, in the whole chapter. 57 verses all boil down to verse 58. Therefore, whenever you see the word therefore, look and see what it's there for. Therefore, based on those 57 verses, based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, based on the historicity of His resurrection, based on the centrality of His resurrection to our faith, based on the implications of His resurrection for our faith and our own resurrection. Therefore, in light of the fact that you will die, you'll be raised again, that there is an eternity, there's a day of judgment. Therefore, in light of all of that, therefore... Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, inasmuch as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. There's our resolve. Let's break it down. First of all, be firm. Be firm. Be resolved. Here's what we need to know, what we need to be, what we need to do. Be 
firm. Or as Paul says it, be steadfast. Be steadfast. That is to be firm. To be solidly in place. To be established in your position, in your faith. To be, to be firmly established, unwavering, resolved, resolute. Paul uses the same terminology in Colossians 1 where he tells that church, if you indeed continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moving away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Verse 58, the last verse, really takes us back to the first verse of the chapter where Paul tells them to, to hold fast the word that he proclaimed. Hang on to the gospel that I preached to you at the beginning unless you've believed in vain. Hold fast to the gospel. So he's urging them to continue in the faith to stand firm in the faith and in the gospel in particular. So the resurrection and the gospel. Number two, be faithful. Be firm and be faithful. Or as Paul puts it, be steadfast and unmovable. Now unmovable here has the same idea as being steadfast, it's just with more intensity. Unmovable, immobile, motionless, like a concrete pillar. It just doesn't move. You can beat it, you can stomp on it, you can run into it. It's just not going to move. It's unshakable. So again, same terminology that he used in Colossians chapter 1. Steadfast, not moved away, readily, not readily shaken. Or as in Ephesians, not being tossed about here and there by, by the waves and uh, uh, false doctrines and, and schemes of men and so forth. Not readily shaken in your beliefs. Steady and unwavering. Don't let anyone or anything move you away from the word of God and the hope of the gospel. Steadfast, unmovable firm, faithful, resolved in the Word of God and the hope of the gospel. Thirdly, in light of the resurrection of Christ, in light of our resurrection, in light of the victory that we have in Christ Jesus, be fruitful. Be fruitful. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. That word abounding is important in that phrase. It has two different nuances. One idea is just overflowing. It's kind of like Psalm 23. My cup overflows. It's overflowing. Abundance. There's also the nuance of, of excelling more and more. Progressing. Surpassing expectations. Going above and beyond. Just more and more and more. So we can put it together. It's overflowing and overdoing. Abounding in the work of the Lord. Overflowing and overdoing. Not doing the minimum, but doing the maximum. And going beyond the maximum. You know, every now and then you do something nice for somebody. And they'll come up and, oh, thank you so much. I can't believe you did that for me. Thank you so much. And in polite conversation, you'll say something like, oh, it's the least I could do. You're just being humble. You're being polite. You're trying to play it down a little bit. Oh, it's the least I could do. But you know what's sad? Too many times when it comes to the things of God... We really do the least we can do. What's the least I can do? Because, you know, I'm busy. i got a lot going on in my life. My plate is full. I don't have time. I don't have energy. What's the least I can do? Wrong mindset. Knowing who Jesus is, what he did, knowing what's to come, the resurrection, all the rest, all these 57 verses, all these truths, you want to abound in the work of the Lord. You don't want to do the minimum. You want to do the maximum. In fact, Paul uses this same word to describe God's grace toward us. In Ephesians 1, he says that God lavished His grace on us. Lavished. It's this word, abounding. God abounded His grace toward us. He says the same thing in Romans 5. God 
lavished His grace. God didn't just give us the minimum amount of grace that it would take to save us, and, and that's all. He wasn't stingy with grace. It overflowed. He overflowed and overdid it when it comes to grace. He lavished His grace. Because He lavished His grace on me, I want to lavish my service toward Him. He poured out His grace on me. Well, I'm going to pour out my life serving Him, abounding in the work of the Lord. Fruitfulness. And then fourthly, be fortified. Be fortified. Again, resolute. Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. It's not a waste of time. You know, sometimes we spend a lot of time and energy on things that don't matter in the end. If you've ever gone to the beach, you play in the sand, right? I mean, you have kids at the beach, you got to build sandcastle. It's a rule somewhere. It's a law. So you got you to build a sandcastle. Folks, that's an effort in futility, isn't it? When you get that sandcastle built, before it's even built, the kid's going to knock it down if it's a boy. I don't know if girls do that. Boys got to tear it down. So before you even get it done, the kid's going to knock it down. If he doesn't knock it down, a wave is going to come in and take it out. Exercise in futility. That's a work in vain, isn't it? You got to dig a hole when you go to the beach. It's, just, it's a rule. We're going to dig a hole. Well, that's an exercise in futility. You could work and work and work, but that hole's going to fill up with sand. It's, it's an exercise in futility. It will not matter. You're working for nothing. When you're working for the Lord, in the name of the Lord, to the glory of the Lord, it's not for nothing. It's not in vain. There's a judgment day that is coming. Knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You don't believe in vain, so you don't live in vain, and you don't work in vain. Now, there's two words for work here in this verse. Notice he's, you're abounding in the work of the Lord. It's, it's, it's the word ergon in the original language. You've heard of ergonomics. You have an ergonomic office chair. You have an ergonomic keyboard for your computer. Ergonomics, that's, that's the root. That's where that word comes from. It's the work. It's the deeds, effort, the work of the Lord. And then knowing that your toil or your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It's, it's kapos, and it, it's hard work. It's work that makes you tired. It's exhausting work. It's labor. So hard work. So you have deeds and you have hard work. Labor. Exhausting work. Hebrews 9.27 says that it is appointed unto man wants to die. And after this, judgment. There's a judgment day that's coming. Revelation, 20, uh, Revelation 14. I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed means fortunate. To be envied. We would, in our vernacular, we'd say, how lucky. How lucky are the dead who die in the Lord. Those, those Christians, when a Christian dies, that lucky duck. Why would you say that the dead in the Lord are blessed? Well, he goes on to say, that they may rest from their labors. Kapos, exhausting, tiring, fatiguing work. They rest from their labors, and their ergon, their works, their deeds, follow after them. What that verse tells us is that now is the time to work. Now is the time to abound in the work of the Lord. In this life, in these days, in this season, at this time, right now, today is the day to abound in the work, hard work for the Lord and in the Lord's name. And one day we'll rest. Today's not the day, but one day we'll rest from our labors and our works will follow after us. That's when we'll be blessed. Fortunate to be envied. Over in Revelation 22, Jesus said, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. His ergon, his work. 2 Corinthians 5.10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. 
1 Corinthians 3.12, If any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work, his ergon, will become evident. For that day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. The fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If his work is burned up, he'll suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. There's a judgment day. As a believer, again, I'm talking to Christians about Christians. As a believer, one day you're going to stand before your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and he's going to judge your life, your work. He won't judge you to decide whether or not you're going into heaven. Nope, that's already been decided. When you said yes to Jesus Christ, you were born into the family of God, your sins were forgiven, your name's written in the Lamb's book of life, heaven is your home. Boom, that's done. That's not to be decided, it is decided when you say yes to Jesus Christ. But he's going to, your risen Savior is going to judge your life. What did you do with a life I redeemed? I saved you. I didn't save you by good works. I saved you for good works. So let's see what you did. And your work will be judged. And when the judgment fires of God, the evaluation of God, if your work remains, if it survives the judgment of God, there'll be reward. Now, not every worker is going to get a reward. And that's a whole other subject for another time. But if any man's work survives the fire, you'll be rewarded. And we can enjoy and employ those rewards in eternity. Again, that, that leads us into another rabbit hole. If this life is all there is, then the beer commercials are right. Might as well just eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. If this life, is, if this is all there is to life, then you might as well just get all the gusto you can. Grab it all and, and, and it, it don't get any better than this. And you might as well live for yourself and just do what you want to do and don't do anything you don't want to do. Just live for yourself and get the most you can. But the whole thrust of this chapter, really the thrust of the whole Bible, is this life is not all there is. Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. He was buried, He was raised again. And one day there's going to be a judgment. And you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, and He will judge you. And there is a long tomorrow called eternity. And if you live for Him now, oh, you can enjoy rewards forever. Knowing your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, what is the work of the Lord? The work of the Lord is the work of making disciples. That's the Great Commission. Go make disciples. It's the work of the gospel, telling lost people about Jesus Christ. It's discipling the saved. It is strengthening the church. It's doing ministry in His name. That's the work of the Lord. And your work in the Lord is not in vain. There will be a day of judgment. God rewards our work. Uh, he doesn't reward Christian consumption where we just consume the goods and products and services of the church. No reward for that. He doesn't reward us for being spiritual sponges just soaking up other blessings. No reward for that. No attendance pins in heaven. But he will reward our work. Our kapas. Hard work. Tiring work. Exhausting work. Frustrating work. Messy work. But it's not in vain in the Lord. Resolved, resolute, firm, bold, steady, faithful, resolved. Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, inasmuch as you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord.
Do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you been saved? That's where Paul starts. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised again the third day according to the Scriptures. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, today's the day. Now's the time. Say yes to Jesus Christ. You have sinned against God. We all have. We're all guilty. Our sins have separated us from God, condemned us to an eternity apart from God. But Jesus Christ died for you. He bore your sins and His body on the tree. He was buried and He was raised again. He's alive today. And a risen Savior offers you the gift of eternal life. You don't earn it. You don't pay for it. You don't deserve it. You receive it by faith in Jesus Christ. You turn to Him and say, Oh, Jesus, I believe you. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the dead. I believe you're the only Savior. I believe I'm in trouble. I believe I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. Save me. I trust you with my life, my death, my eternity. Come into my heart. Forgive me. Save me. Change me. I'm yours. If you've never done that, today's the day. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing our hymn of decision. I'll be right here. Come to me and say, Preacher, I need Jesus. I want to be saved. However you want to say it, we invite you to come. Say yes to Jesus Christ. We won't pressure you. We won't embarrass you. We'd just love to have a private conversation with you, pray with you if you'd like to. Leave here today, child of God. Maybe you need to join this church. We'd love to have you. You come. Say, I want to join the church. We'll take it from there. Perhaps you need to follow him in baptism. You come. Let's talk about that. Maybe you want to pray with somebody. We'd love to pray with you. Whatever he's saying to you, you say yes to him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this chapter and the truth of it. Oh, Lord, it comforts us. We have all lost loved ones. Lord, to know that our loved ones in Christ, they're with you. Lord, that comforts us. We're going to see them again. Lord, that comforts us. That the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we'll meet them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Lord, we are comforted by these words. Lord, we are challenged by these words. Therefore, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because we know our labor is not in vain the Lord. We are challenged. I pray that we would be resolved, resolute because of these truths. Seal this message to our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.